Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're working our way through this letter from Paul to the churches in and around Ephesus. And last week we concluded chapter 1 where we saw Paul's prayer for his fellow believers. And if you were with us, you'll remember that we saw while there are many good things to pray for, many requests that we ought to pray for for one another, when Paul prays for his fellow believers, there is one key desire, one thing that he prays for above all else, and that is that they might grow in their knowledge of God, that the eyes of their hearts would be open to understand all that they have in Christ, who has been given to the church as our head, filling his body with his power and presence. And I think if you were to summarize chapter 1 of Ephesians, we could say that Paul's been rehearsing the greatness of salvation largely from God's perspective as we've looked at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how they've brought, he has one God, triune God has brought salvation to his people. But now as we look to chapter 2, Paul turns to consider salvation from our perspective, who we were apart from Christ, what God does in us through Christ, and what changes in us as a result. This morning, we want to look at verses 1 through 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. So follow along as I read from God's Word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's word, let's pray. Father, how we thank you for giving your word to us, and how we thank you for continuing to work in us through your word by your spirit. And that is what we pray for this morning, that you would convict us of sin and magnify Christ in our hearts. And we pray this for his sake. Amen. Often the blessings that we receive in life and those that we appreciate the most are not necessarily the biggest blessings, but the ones that come in our time of need. I certainly appreciate any well-cooked meal, but there's nothing like being ravenously hungry to make a piece of bread and a slice of turkey taste like the best meal you've had in weeks. I often Imagine if you were walking through the street in your town, and all of a sudden a a man came up to you and said, don't worry, I'll save you. Probably look at him quizzically and maybe walk the other direction, muttering about creepy guys on the street. 
But if you're barely staying afloat in the ocean, carried out by a riptide, and those words came from a boat which has come near to you, they are words of glorious rescue. And so we see that, to put it another way, our situation influences what we think about what is offered to us. And the same is true spiritually as well. And that's what Paul highlights in our passage this morning. He's reviewing the greatness of God's salvation. And in these seven verses, Paul makes it clear that in sin, we are in greater danger than we could possibly know. But in Christ, God has given us greater hope than we have yet begun to grasp. And that is the key point this morning. And to see that, I want us to follow this text and see our condition in sin, God's response to our sin, and then the hope that we have in Christ. So let's begin in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, Paul describes our condition in sin. And it's hard really to imagine a more dire review of our situation. Paul begins by declaring that apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses, in sins in which we walk. Now a trespass is to go where we are not supposed to go. It's to break a rule. We all know the no trespassing signs, and to trespass is to go where we've been forbidden to go. The word for to sin literally means to miss the mark. It's to fail to do what we are called to do. And apart from Christ, we find ourselves doing both of these things. Doing what we ought not do, and not doing the things we are called to do, to honor and obey God. And Paul says that in these trespasses and sins, we are dead. And by declaring us dead in sin, I think Paul is telling us two things. On the one hand, he's telling us that in our trespasses and sins, we are spiritually dead. We are separated and alienated from God. This was the death God foretold to Adam and Eve when he said, if you eat this fruit, you will die. And what happened when they ate the fruit? They were separated from God and His presence, unable to be with this holy God because of their sin and cast out of the Garden of Eden. But Paul tells us that we're also dead, and I think he uses the word dead as well, because there's nothing we can do to fix this situation. A dead person can't put a band-aid on his cut. A dead person can't climb out of the pit into which they have fallen. And so it is with us. As Paul tells us in Romans 6 and in Romans 8, in our sins we are enslaved to sin so that we cannot please God. We are unable to change our situation in our sin. We could say, I suppose, that we are the walking dead. We're very much alive and walking about in the sense that we are living and actively making choices, and those are sinful choices, very much active choices on our parts. And yet we're very much dead because in our very nature, those choices are focused on ourselves and doing what we want to do rather than what God has called us to do. So that we are dead, unable to please our God or honor Him. Separated from His presence because He is holy and we are sinful. Now someone might pause here and say, now wait a second, what do you mean when you say that we cannot please God in our sin. After all, maybe we know many people who are not Christians who act with virtue and kindness, and it seems like they are able to do some things that maybe are, are obedient to God. 
So how can we say that apart from Christ, we are incapable of pleasing God? Well, maybe consider this analogy from R.C. Sproul. Imagine, imagine that you are driving a car, and, and as you drive, you really like driving 55 miles an hour. 55 miles an hour just works for you. It's what you're comfortable with, it gets you where you're needing to go, and so you just always drive 55 miles an hour. That's what you like to do. Well, sometimes you're going to be obeying the law. You're going to be going the speed limit sometimes. Other times you're not, of course. But the point is, you're not, you don't care about the law. You're just doing what you want to do. And the same is true with us spiritually. In life, because God has built his law into the natural order of things, we will often be kind to others. We will often do things that are good because it works well for us. It leads to the better consequences in life. But we're not doing it to please God. We're not doing it to obey God. We're doing it because it works for us. Because that's what's leading our life to work out best. And the fact is, if we are doing what happens to be socially good because it works best for us, we are just as much in insubordination to God. We are just as much displeasing to Him if we are doing what we do for our sake rather than His. So that, even, so that in sin, even our good deeds are part of our life of death, of trespasses and sins, because it is lived for our sake according to our standards and not by His or for him. Now, Paul says here that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and if someone is dead and you want to know why they are dead, you would order an autopsy to determine the cause of death. And in verses 2 and 3 here, Paul gives us something of an autopsy of our lives apart from Christ. Why is it that we are dead in our trespasses and sins? What are some of the contributing influences? And Paul argues that We are dead in sin because our choices are made following the world, the devil, and the flesh. See this in verses 2. We follow the course of this world, which means that we are influenced by this world. We are motivated by the thinking, the philosophy, the goals, and the standards of this world. You know, oftentimes we don't realize how much we're shaped by the people around us. We don't think we have an accent until we go to a different neighborhood where they speak differently and all of a sudden we realize, oh, I have an accent. And in similar ways, it's hard for us maybe sometimes to realize how much of what we love and what our goals are and how we act are following the course of this world, committing ourselves to its principles and standards, to its pleasures, joys, and goods as our goals. We follow the course of this world. But we also, Paul says, follow the prince of the power of the air, which of course is is Satan, who sends a spirit of disobedience among mankind. I think we all know the way this spirit of disobedience works. Something may not be that attractive until it's off limits, and all of a sudden we find it quite attractive, and we want to chase after it. This spirit of disobedience where we are discontent with what we have and desire the things that are off limits. It's exactly what Satan's tactic was from the minute he showed up in the Garden of Eden. What does he say to Eve? Did God really say that you would die? You won't die. And he's sowing the seeds of discontentment and distrust and disobedience. And the same spirit Satan is at work to to spread amongst mankind today. And in our sin, we follow that spirit of disobedience and distrust that's been sowed by Him. We follow the course of this world. We follow 
the prince of the power of the air and his spirit of disobedience, but we also follow the passions of our flesh, which Paul says are the desires of our body and mind. And here I think we have the heart of sin. Because sin is not a wicked rage that comes over particularly bad people. Sin is the commitment to ourselves. It is the commitment to pursue and to get what we desire. Maybe that's the acceptance of others. Maybe that's material possessions. Maybe that's sexual pleasure, ambition. Maybe it's just the freedom to do what I want to do. And we follow in our sin the desires of our body and mind. And it's precisely here, and I want us all to, to think about this and pay particularly atten- particular attention here because it's precisely here that our culture has introduced such a deadly lie. And the lie is this, that if I feel a certain way or feel a certain desire, then fulfilling that desire is my hope for happiness and overcoming my problems in life while repressing or denying that desire will lead to anxiety and despair. That's the lie our culture has told us. And so, maybe it's in larger ways. If I feel the need for sexual fulfillment, I should have it. If I feel that I am a different gender, I must be allowed to live as the opposite gender. If I have felt needs, no parent or teacher or friend should stand in my way. It's also at work in us in little ways, too. We think in the difficulties of our life that if we just had a larger house, if we just had a job I actually liked, if I just had a different spouse who actually respected me, then my life would be better and my problems would be solved. But do you see the devious lie of Satan? He's influenced an entire generation to accept this lie that fulfilling my desires, which are the very work of sin in my life, making the problem in the first place, that fulfilling my desires will be the hope of escaping the hardships of life and becoming what I am supposed to be. Which leaves us pursuing ever more strongly the desires of our body and the desires of our mind that are part of our sin that leads to our death in the first place. So we have been trapped if we follow this philosophy in a lie that cycles us straight back to the death at work in us in the first place. But things get worse for us because Paul goes on to note that our commitment to ourselves is not just something we do, it's something about who we are in our very nature. You see that in verse 3. Our very nature is born bent against God, following this world and our desires instead of bowing in trust and obedience to our Creator and a King. We are, you could say, born with the cancer of sin. Many of you know more about cancer than I do. I know very little about science or medicine, but I was riveted by Siddhartha Mercurhi's book, The Emperor of All Maladies. And in this book, he describes cancer as a disease that does not come to us from the outside. Rather, cancer is our own cells, multiplying as they are supposed to, but without restraint, and so leading to our death instead of our life. And what a perfect picture of sin. Sin is not something that comes to get us from the outside. It is a distorted commitment within us in our very nature to ourselves and to this world without restraint. And it leads to our death rather than our life. And the eternal result, Paul says, is that our sinful nature makes each one of us children of wrath, justly deserving God's punishment. 
Now, if we could just stop here, if we're honest, this is where we sometimes get tripped up. Because most of us are willing to admit that we make mistakes. Most of us are even willing to make, admit that at times we want things and we go ahead and do them even though we know that they're wrong. But, surely we think it is unfair that God would threaten us with eternal wrath and punishment for those mistakes. After all, we would never dream of killing someone for doing what we didn't want them to do. We would condemn any parental discipline philosophy that said, if you disobey my rules, you die. But this betrays our poor sense of justice. Because here we need to remember what sin is. Sin is going our way instead of God's way. But our way and God's way are not like a fork in the road and we can choose one or the other. This is, after all, God's universe. He created it and He created us for His glory. Which means to go our way instead of God's way, to spend our lives for ourselves rather than Him is nothing less than high treason against the King of the universe. And we have to remember that sin is not just judged by the act, but by who you are offending. And Azim understood this so well. Listen to Azim. He's an Arab believer who was riding in a taxi. And his taxi driver mentioned to him that he knew he had done some bad things in life, but not too many bad things, and he expected that God would let him into heaven just fine. So Azim asked him, he said, Sir, if I slapped you in the face right now, what would you do to me? And the taxi driver said, Well, I'd throw you out of my taxi. And Azim said, That's good. He said, what if, I, what if I went from here and slapped a policeman in the face? And, as he, and the driver said, well, you'd probably get beat up and then they would throw you in jail. And Azim said, very good. And he said, what if, what if I went to the king of your country and I slapped him in the face? And the driver laughed nervously and said, you would die. And Azim said, so you see, sir, that the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of who you sin against. And to sin, even in what we see as little ways, against the infinite and holy God is to deserve infinite and holy wrath and punishment. And in the end, we tend to take God's wrath lightly because we view sin itself too lightly. And we view sin itself too lightly because we view God himself too lightly. And we would all do well to remember that, whether we have come to Christ or not, that any sin is a sin of treason against God, and a sin is judged not by the act itself alone, but who it is against. And so we have the judgment that we are children of wrath in our sins. This is a grim picture. After all, what hope is there for those who not only have sinned against this God, but who are dead in our sins against God? But verse 4, verse 4 brings the shift. And here in verse 4, we find two words that can change our lives. But God. And here Paul goes on to describe how God has acted in response to our sin. And Scripture uses this two-word phrase often to declare that where there should be no hope, God has acted to bring us hope. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed Himself. 
to us by His Spirit. Ephesians 2 here says, We are dead in trespasses and sins, deserving the full weight of His wrath, but God has come to make us alive in Christ. Why? Why would God do that? Well, Paul piles up words in verses 4-7 to to give us a glimpse of the character of God that motivates His response to our sin. God acts to make dead people alive in Christ because He is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, because of the immeasurable riches of His grace, and because of His kindness towards us in Christ. Mercy describes God's willingness to show favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. God has every right to condemn us. And yet in mercy, He acts to make us alive in Christ. Love describes God's commitment to the good of His people, even at His own expense. The willingness to sacrifice ourselves for someone else to be committed to them is love. And C.S. Lewis describes God's love this way. He said, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creations. He doesn't need us. We play no role in His glory that He needs. He is fully self-sufficient on His own. God loves into existence wholly superfluous creations in order that He might love them and perfect them. And He creates them already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the nerves, the repeated torture of back and arms as time and again, for breath's sake, they are hitched up. Herein is God's love. Grace. Grace refers to God's willingness to come and act for our salvation even though we have not earned it. God doesn't owe anyone salvation. No one has has proven themselves worthy of God's salvation. And there is no reason other than His own character and desire that He would send His Son to the cross to die in our place that we might be forgiven and accepted in His sight. That is grace. And kindness. What is kindness but God's proactive gentleness and favor to His people, sending Christ to us while we are still in our sins. Pile up mercy and love and grace and kindness. And what we end up with is one God of gods who from His own character yearns with love and kindness for His people who goes to the utmost lengths to act for our own good. You know, if any of us are tempted to doubt God's goodness or God's love, and at times we can be tempted to do just that, we look around ourselves at the hardship and the suffering that continues in this world. Maybe we look at our own failures and we doubt God's goodness and love. And certainly there is suffering and hardship that continues in this world where sin is still well at play. But we have to remember this if we doubt God's love or goodness. From all eternity, knowing the suffering it would cost him, God eagerly looked forward to sending His own Son to the cross for our sake. And if our God was willing to give up His own Son to the depths of hell for us, the one leg we cannot stand on is the idea that God is not good or does not love His people. You think of Deuteronomy 7. 
where we're reminded that God made Israel His own, not for anything good in them, but because He loved them. And Ephesians 2 is saying the same thing about all God's people. That God has loved us not for anything in us, but because He has loved us from His own character. And that love is available, that salvation is available to any who would repent of sin and come and put their faith in Jesus. And it's love like this that inspires poetry, like amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is our God in his response to sin. But before we end, look again at verses 4 through 7 as Paul describes the hope that we have in Christ. Now, you probably wouldn't know this from reading the English, but when Paul begins to describe for the Ephesians what God has done for them in Christ, he finds that the Greek language fails him. There are no words in the Greek language to describe what we have in Christ. And so Paul makes up three new words. He makes up three new words by smashing together some prepositions and verbs that had never been combined before. And these prepositions and verbs are put together to highlight our union with Christ. We've talked about our union with Christ several times already. That the benefits of salvation are not something that are packaged and handed over to us. Rather, the benefits of salvation are ours when we are united in an intimate union with Jesus. So that all that is His becomes ours. And what is true of Him becomes true of us since He died in our place and now marries us to Himself by His Spirit. And that's what Paul highlights with these verbs, because he takes three perfectly good verbs, to make alive, to raise up, and to seat, and he smashes onto it the preposition, together with. So that these things are ours, together with, with Jesus. You see what he says, we go from death to life, when we are united to Christ, because Christ was raised from death to life. That is, we go from separated and alienated from God to reconciled to God and welcomed into His presence because we are joined to Christ. And we are rescued from our bondage to the world, the devil and the flesh, and the death that results from us, and are made alive so that we are able to obey God and live with Him for all eternity. And we have those blessings only as we are joined to Jesus Christ. He makes us alive with Christ. Then we are raised up into heaven with Christ. When we are joined to Christ, earth is no longer our home. We no longer follow this world, for we have ascended into the heavens with Christ. We are now citizens of heaven, and the presence of God and the riches of His kingdom are what we look for and what we judge our lives on now. Not, not the opinions or values or offerings of this world. As Paul says to the Colossians, if you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. And here, of course, is the practical daily encouragement to each one of us. Because so much of our fear and our anxiety, our hopes and our despairs, our angers and our distractions come from letting our hearts get wrapped up in the things of this world. And the solution is what Paul calls us to right here. You have been raised with Christ. Don't set your minds and your hearts on things on earth. Set your gaze on heaven where Christ is because you have been raised up into the heavenly places with Him 
That's where you belong now. He's your treasure now. And the pleasure of God is now our desire and our goal. And finally, Paul says literally that God has made us sit down together with Christ in heaven. And this seat that we are brought to represents both victory and intimacy. It represents victory because you remember what seat it is that Christ is seated in. It's the seat at the right hand of God. And we remember Psalm 110 where we read where God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We've been invited to sit in that seat, that seat at the right hand of God, so that in Christ we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. But this term is also a gracious invitation to intimate fellowship. You know how it is. Maybe you go to, to an event or, or a party and there's seats all around the table and someone comes up to you and says, come, sit with me. Sit next to me so that we can talk over dinner, so that we can catch up and be together. And here is God inviting us to say, come, sit with me in Christ. It's an invitation to fellowship, an invitation to be right here next to me. And that's what God has invited us to in Christ into a reconciled fellowship with Him so that He says, come, sit with me. These are tremendous blessings that God has given us in Christ. And they are ours now if we have put our faith in Him, if we have submitted to Him. But they will be fully ours in the ages to come when we are brought to be with Christ forever. And that's the promise that is guaranteed by our union with Christ So that, as Paul says, in the ages to come, we will then fully know the immeasurable riches of His grace towards us in Christ. Well, as we come to the end of this passage this morning, we we come off this passage on a high point, marveling at the grace and the goodness of God to us in Jesus Christ. But our delight in that grace and that kindness, that great love of God for us, that, that rich mercy that He's shown to us, will only be full if we keep in mind where we started, where we've come from. That we all start dead in our trespasses in sin. And that's not just where we started. Of course, for for those of us in Christ, we still know the remaining sin in our lives. And if we understand the nature of sin and its heinousness before a great and holy God, it ought to drive us back to Jesus day after day, Every day we should be amazed that a sinner like me should be offered a salvation like this by such a God. Only when we're honest about the depth of our sinfulness and the wrath that we deserve can our lives be changed by those two words, but God. Only then will you and I see how much we need this salvation. And if you have not put your faith in Christ this morning, then I would hope that maybe this morning You would see our true nature and what we deserve, but what God has offered us in Christ. Only when we see this contrast will we understand how much God has done for us in Christ and lead us to conclude with the hymn writer, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for this salvation that You have offered us in Christ. How I pray this morning that You would open our eyes to see the nature of our sin. To see the ways that we follow the course of this world. That we follow that spirit of disobedience. 
that we follow the desires of our flesh and our mind, the ways that we reject you and choose to live life on our standards for our sake and do not submit to you. Oh Lord, show us how much we deserve the wrath of God in ourselves. And yet, Father, help us to know these words, but God, who has sent to us your only Son to die on the cross in our place and rise again that we may be raised with him, made alive with him, seated with him. What a hope. May that give us joy and delight. and May that encourage us to fix our minds on you and the things above each day this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.